Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Pushkin. Hi listeners, it's Jacob Weisberg here. I'm the CEO of Pushkin Industries. At Pushkin, we think of Juneteenth as an opportunity to reflect on the past and think about the future. How do we build a more just and equitable society? We strive to make podcasts that help to answer that question. And in honor of Juneteenth, we're highlighting two of them. Be Anti-Racist is hosted by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, an author, professor, activist, and historian. His book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, has become a guide for anyone interested in dismantling the structures that racism creates. The podcast gives him a chance to dive deep into issues like immigration, sports, and voting rights, with guests like Julian Castro and Jamel Hill. You're going to hear an excerpt from a conversation Dr. Kendi had recently with author and political analyst Heather C. McGee. They focus on the economic costs of racism for everyone, not just those in black or brown communities, and how diversity can lead to economic prosperity for all. Then you'll hear a truly remarkable story of bridging racial divides. Daryl Davis is a black jazz musician who has convinced hundreds of KKK members to leave the Klan. 
It all started with one conversation in a jazz club, because Daryl was interested in understanding people with wildly different views. Daryl appeared on A Slight Change of Plans, a podcast hosted by Dr. Maya Shankar. Shankar is a cognitive scientist who's fascinated by what happens when we find ourselves at the brink of change. And she's got a knack for getting people, including Hillary Clinton and Tiffany Haddish, to open up to her. Here's Dr. Kendi on Be Anti-Racist. Welcome to Be Anti-Racist, an action podcast where we discuss how to diagnose, dismantle, and abolish racism, how to save humanity from the divisiveness of racist ideas and the destructiveness of racist power and policy, how to free humanity through the unity of anti-racist ideas and the constructiveness of anti-racist power and policy. On Be Anti-Racist, we discuss how to make the impossible possible, and how to bring into being what modern humans have never known, a just and equitable world. You ready? Let's roll. In the 1930s and 40s, the United States went on a nationwide building boom of public amenities funded by tax dollars, which in Montgomery, Alabama, included the Oak Park Pool, which was the grandest one for miles, except the Oak Park Pool was for whites only. When a federal court finally deemed this unconstitutional, the reaction of the town council was swift. They decided they would drain the public pool rather than let Black families swim, too. They never rebuilt the pool. Racism has a cost for everyone. Heather McGee is an expert in economic and social policy and the author of the best-selling book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather explodes one of the greatest racial myths that white people lose as people of color gain. She shows that as racism wins, we all lose. Heather is one of America's sharpest thinkers, the former president of the inequality-focused think tank Demos, and has drafted legislation, testified before Congress, and contributed regularly to new shows, including NBC's Meet the Press. She now chairs the board of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. I sat down with Heather McGee recently to learn how, by investing in each other, we can all achieve better jobs, better health, better democracy, better schools, better neighborhoods for our kids, and so much more. Heather, as always, it's truly an honor to speak with you your book, The Sum of Us, is the type of book that I learned from, that I think many Americans and many people around the world can learn from. I wrote this book because I felt like we were missing something in the great pursuit of a society. It should be to have progress, to have people have less want and more joy, people to have more of the fruits of economic progress and technological progress and for our problems to be solved generation after generation, right? And it felt like that progress 
<laughs> slowing down slash reversing. When some Americans imagine the transformation of this country, they imagine that they're going to lose if we actually create an equitable and just anti-racist America. And it seems, as you've written, that that's based on a zero-sum myth. Mm-hmm. So I left a career in economic policy to go out on this quixotic journey <laughs> in some ways <laughs> to find the answer to the question of why can't we seem to have nice things and what are the roots of our dysfunction? Yeah. And it's there that I came upon this paradigm of the zero sum. It's a term that means there's no such thing as mutual progress. When you have people who are in a competition with one another, if team A scores one more point, team B scores one less point. The points will always add up to zero, positive on one side, negative on the other. Progress for team A has to come at the expense of team B. There's a limited or fixed pie. And that idea resonated so deeply with me. It sort of gave a name and a description to something I'd sensed my whole life. This fear that when white supremacy falls, that the world will become one that white people should fear. Mm -hmm. Therefore, racism is really great for white people, really terrible for people of color. And so their self-interest is in preserving racism at all costs. And it's the at all costs piece that really felt so important for me to lay out. What are the costs of racism to our entire society? What exactly is the price white people are willing to pay to keep the system as it has been. And once I started looking, the list just kept growing. And and that made it clear to me that we have these self-interested elites packaging, marketing, selling this zero-sum lie to most white Americans. And they're doing it for their own profit. But our side, when we only talk about racism as something that's good for white people, are kind of like helping out a little bit, right? My provocation, the agitation that made me feel like, okay, maybe I do have something to add to this conversation was we haven't told the full story of what it has cost this entire country. You were specifically writing about white folks who think that they're going to lose. But as a man of color reading it, (laughs) I also think men of color too have bought into this myth of the zero sum. Mm. And I think that as they've seen women of color organizing and advocating and in some cases rising, they too have felt threatened as if they're losing. Yeah. But back to white folks, this is what I've been sort of saying, and I want to know whether I'm just wrong, (laughs) (laughs) that white Americans typically compare their lot to people of color. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, if their school has more resources. In a way, their child's school is almost like a first-class school. They're like, whoa, if we create equity, then I'm going to be back in coach. Yeah, (laughs) I don't want that. I'm going to lose. My kid's going to lose. But it seems to me that white Americans should be assessing themselves from other white people in the Western Mm -hmm. world. Yeah. And when they make that comparison, that's when they can see actually... what they don't have, how they're in coach. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and in fact, maybe in other societies in the Western world, 
everybody's just in first class. There's no little curtain that the flight attendant moves exactly. over, right? Everyone gets food, right? Everyone has a <laughs> leg room, you know? Everybody gets to bring a bag, you know what I'm saying? This really comes from and is a feature of how brutally hierarchical our society is. In the first chapter of The Some of Us, I go back in our history. I, am, I, unlike somebody else here on this conversation, I'm not an historian, but I felt like I had to go to the beginning to find out where this zero-sum worldview and this lie came from, whose interest it served, and why it sort of reanimated generation after generation. And as it turns out, it was created as a way to sort of discipline white Europeans in the colonial era to be satisfied with their lot in a society where wealth was still quite concentrated and where because of chattel slavery and the plantation economy, there actually wasn't a lot of room. Mm -hmm. A white person who was not a plantation owner their labor wasn't needed in the Southern economy, right? Like, what, what do we need you for, right? This myth of white supremacy was sold to white masses so that they could have, of course, as W.B. Du Bois said, the psychological wages of whiteness rather than material wages. And those psychological wages were knowing always that in a deeply unequal economy, they could nonetheless count on being more than and better than Black people. Now hang on for the amazing story of Daryl Davis from A Slight Change of Plans. So I was riding in my car. I'm driving, and this Klansman was sitting in my passenger seat. And we got on the, on the topic of uh, crime. And he made the mention that uh, black people are born with a gene that makes them violent. And I said, look, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a drive-by or a carjacking. How do you explain that? This man did not hesitate one second. He answered me instantly. He said, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. That's Daryl Davis, a blues musician. And yeah, you heard him right. He's driving in his car with a member of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. And he's sitting next to me all smug and secure, like, uh-huh, you see, you know, you have nothing to say. And I thought about it for a moment. Rather than attack him, just say, it's not true, it's not true. I said to him, I said, you know, white people have a gene within them that make them serial killers. And he said, why would you say that? I said, well, face it, name me three black serial killers. He thought about it. He couldn't name anybody. He couldn't do it. I rattled off Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, uh, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. And I said, son, you are a serial killer. And he said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, your genus latent hasn't come out yet. He said, well, that's stupid. And I said, well, duh, <laughs> it is stupid. And he got very, very quiet. And I could tell that the gears in, in his head were spinning super fast, probably, you know, burning a hole in there. And then he, you know, a moment later, you know, he changed the subject. But within five months, this guy quit the Ku Klux Klan. 
Since that car ride 30 years ago, Daryl Davis has gone on to convince dozens of people to leave the Ku Klux Klan. Convincing someone else to change their mind, their view of reality, is one of the most elusive, coveted types of change, which is why Daryl's story feels so improbable. So how does he do it? I'm Maya Shunker. As a cognitive scientist, I've always been fascinated by how we change our minds and why we change our minds. On this show, I'll have intimate conversations with people who've navigated extraordinary change. And hopefully their stories will get us to think differently about change in our own lives. This is a slight change of plans. Daryl didn't set out to change anyone's mind. He was mostly just focused on his music. But one night, his life took an unexpected turn when he was playing a show at a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. The Silver Dollar Lounge at the time was an all-white lounge. And I say that not meaning that black people could not go in, but meaning that they did not go in by their own choice because they were not welcome there. And when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and uh, alcohol is being served, sometimes it does not make for a good combination, especially when you're outnumbered. So w- we took a break after the first set, and I was walking across the dance floor to go sit you know, with the bandmates when somebody approached me from behind and put their arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in this place, so I'm turning around to see who's touching me. And it was this gentleman, maybe 15, 18 years older than me. And he's all excited. He says, man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I told him, I said, well, Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. Oh, no, 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 no. I never heard no black man play like that except for you. Jerry Lee invented that style. I said, look, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy didn't buy that either. But he was so fascinated with me that he wanted me to come back to his table. He's going to buy me a drink. So I don't drink, but I agreed to have a cranberry juice. He bought it, paid the waitress, and then he took his glass and he clinked my glass and cheered me. And then he announces, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down with a black man and had a drink. So innocently, I asked him, why? And he didn't answer me at first. I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him. And the guy looked at me and said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing at him because now I do not believe him. I thought he was, you know, pulling a joke on me. I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his Klan membership card. I recognize the Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. And I, I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, this is for real. So I stopped laughing. But he was, you know, very friendly and, and very... Uh, appreciative of of my music and all excited, he gave me his phone number to uh, you know to call him whenever I was to return to this bar with this band, and so I'd call him every six weeks and say, "Hey man, you know I'm down there at the Silver Dollar this weekend. Come on out." You say it so nonchalantly, like so. I called the guy. It is remarkable that you called this person, and uh, you know I don't think I'm alone in 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 struggling to understand you know what was going through through your mind at this moment. 
if someone told me that they were in the freaking clan, I would certainly not call them back. In fact, I'd probably just flee the scene. And, and I think this is for pretty good reasons. Well, you know, I was questioning myself for a second, like, what the heck am I doing sitting here with a clansman? But the guy was friendly. He disputed the things that I had in mind uh, of uh, the image of a typical clansman. And he wanted to share my music with uh, some of his fellow clansmen and clanswomen. Hmm. And they would, you know, get on the dance floor and dance to our music. You know, they didn't come in robes and hoods, right? You know, they yeah. came in, you know, regular street clothes. This goes on for a year, an entire year. Daryl would play a gig at this bar, and he would invite clan members to watch him play. This is one of those things that makes Daryl so unusual. I mean, for me, a huge part of what makes someone who they are is their belief system. And so if we share the same taste in music, that's fine, that's great. But if I then find out they're a flagrant racist, that's going to fully eclipse everything else about them. So how does Daryl look past that? He says it's not like that. He wasn't looking past it. He wanted to learn from it. See, Daryl had spent his early childhood overseas in a school he describes as a United Nations for little kids. Race was always in the background. But when he moved back to the States when he was 10, he couldn't escape racism. And ever since then, he's been interested in why people hate. I had had an experience at the age of 10 where some racist people threw rocks and bottles at me during a parade in which I was the only black participant. And never having had this happen to me before, I was perplexed as to why people were doing this. And when later my parents explained that it was racism, my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me before, who had never spoken with me and knew nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. You know, uh, that just did not compute with me. Well, later when I realized this was true, there are people like that, I formed a question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And some people would just say, well, Daryl, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, no, it's not just the way it is. There has to be a reason behind it. Well, it's always been that way. That was not good enough for me. I want to get to the nucleus of it. So Daryl dedicates himself to answering this question. He devours books about race and racism. He reads nearly every book that exists on the Klan. But he's still unsatisfied. So he decides he wants to write his own book about the Klan. All the books written on the Klan, except for mine, have been written by white authors. You know, white authors obviously have an easier time getting in contact with the Klan and sitting down and not fearing any ramifications or whatever. Or they might even join the Klan undercover. A Klansman would have a different perspective sitting there talking to a black person than he would a white person. And how, how do you feel that perspective would have been different? Because he's sitting there telling the person that he hates why he hates him. So now he's having to face me and face those same questions, you know, that, he, that, that somebody would ask, or even different questions that a, that a white interviewer, journalist, uh, would not ask because they don't think of him, because they don't feel the, things, the same things that I feel. As Daryl starts researching for his book, it suddenly dawns on him. He already knows someone in the Klan, that guy from the Silver Dollar Lounge. So he goes on a mission to track him down. It takes a while, but eventually he finds the guy's address. And I knocked on the door, you know, unannounced. And he opens the door and sees me. He goes, Daryl, you know, what are you doing here? And he looked up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me. 
So it was more him who was intimidated than me. And uh, when, he, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turns around, comes back in. So now we're, we're standing inside his apartment. And he says, you know, what's going on? Are you still playing? What's going on? I say, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, I need to talk to you about the Klan. He says, the Klan? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I quit. You know, I, I quit a while back. I said, well, you know, where's all your Klan stuff? He says, well, they came and got it. And I said, what do you mean they came and got your Robin Hood? You know, don't, don't you own it? And he explained to me, when you join the Klan, if you have the money to pay for it, you can purchase your Robin Hood and it's yours to keep forever. If you cannot afford it at the time, you can still take it home with you, but you put a little extra money in every time you pay your dues until you pay it off. Sort of like layaway kind of thing. A bizarre financial aid system within the Klan. Love it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, equal opportunity <laughs> for everyone who's racist. Great. That's right. Okay. Absolutely. So uh, anyway, he said that um, uh, they came and got it, but when they came to get it, he could not find the mask. And um, he, he had since found it, and he, and he needed to return it. I said, well, can I see it? So he goes down the hallway, comes back, and hands me the mask. And I said to him, I said, do you know Roger Kelly? And he goes, yeah, Roger was my grand dragon. I know him. And I said, well, listen, I need you to hook me up with Mr. Kelly. I want you to interview him. I'm going to write a book on the Klan. Now, let me explain how the hierarchy of the Klan works. You understand these terms. Uh, we would call a state leader a governor. They call that the grand dragon, a mayor. That person is known as the exalted cyclops. Anybody <laughs> on the great level is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, the self-importance of these names is, is truly astonishing. Well, see, that's, yeah, but see, that's also what attracts people because, you know, they, they get titles, they feel important. Yes. It's, it's a sense of self-importance, you know, because they're, they're not getting that from the society in which they live. So, you know, this brotherhood, this gang, if you will, gives them those things. So at the time, Roger Kelly was the Grand Dragon, state leader from Maryland. So I said, I'll tell you what, you need to return this mask, right? He said, yeah. I said, give me Roger Kelly's phone number and his address, and I'll go return it for you. And he snatched that thing right out of my hand and said, no way. And so I begged and pleaded with him. Well, he finally gave it to me on the condition that I not reveal to Mr. Kelly where I got it. And um, he warned me. He said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. Roger Kelly will kill you. And I said, well, that's, that's the whole reason why I need to talk to Mr. Kelly. I need to know why would he kill me? I mean, what, what is going on in, in his mind when he sees me? I have to understand this. You did realize that you might not get the answer to the question if, in fact, the um, dangerous part happened first, right? Uh, true. This is true. But, but, I, but I, I was thinking, you know, that um, I, would, I would prevail. I'm the eternal optimist, if you will. Well, I am not the eternal optimist, and Daryl's decision feels incredibly risky. But anyway, he has his secretary, Mary, call and schedule the interview, and he gives her one important instruction. Do not tell him that I'm black, and see if you would consent to sitting down and giving her boss an interview. I figured, you know, he might pick up in my voice that I'm black, and, uh, I didn't want him to hang up the phone and say, am I talking to you? And then my whole project would have ended before it ever got started. Roger Kelly agrees to meet for an interview one evening at a nearby motel. Daryl gets to the motel early with Mary. He's not sure if Roger will even agree to step foot in the room. But if he does, Daryl wants to be hospitable. He asks Mary to fill up the ice bucket and buy some sodas. And then they start arranging the room. There's not much to arrange. There's the ice bucket, a table, two chairs, 
and Daryl's canvas bag, which has his tape recorder and a Bible. The Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they claim that the Bible preaches uh, racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I have never seen anything like that in there. So I want to be able to pull out my Bible and hand it to him and say, here, Mr. Kelly, please show me chapter and verse where it says blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared, right? Right on time, right to the minute, 515, knock, knock, knock on the door. In walks what is known as the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk means bodyguard, uh, security. He's dressed in military camouflage, and he has that clan patch on his chest on one side. On the other side of his chest are the initials KKK, and embroidered on his cap, it said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a semi-automatic handgun and a holster. He comes in. Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind him, carrying a briefcase and a dark blue suit and tie. And the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me and just froze in his tracks. So Mr. Kelly slammed into his back and knocked this guy forward. And now that they both are stumbling around trying to you know, regain their balance. And they're like looking all around the room like, uh-uh, something's not right here. And I'm just sitting at the table looking at their faces. And I could read their faces like a billboard. Uh, their faces were saying to me, uh, did the desk clerk give us the wrong room number? Did, you, did, did we misunderstand something? Or is this an ambush? So, you know, I saw the apprehension. And so I stood up and I displayed both of my palms to show I had nothing in my hands. And I walked forward. I extended my right hand. And I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, I'm Daryl Davis. I hope both of these conversations inspire thinking and conversation around issues of race. You can find more episodes of Be Anti-Racist and A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.